Welcome to episode 26 of the Language Neuroscience Podcast. I'm Stephen Wilson, and I'm a neuroscientist at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. My guest today is Laura Williams. Laura is currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of California, San Francisco, but in a few months, she'll be starting a new position at Stanford University as an assistant professor of psychology, neuroscience, and data science. Laura is an outstanding up-and-coming researcher who uses magnetoencephalography and electrocorticography to study how the brain derives representations from auditory input and to investigate the computational processes involved. Today, we're going to focus on her recent paper, Neural Dynamics of Phoneme Sequences Reveal Position Invariant Coding for Content and Order, with co-authors Jean-Rémy King, Alec Morantz, and David Popel, that just came out in Nature Communications. Okay, let's get to it. Hi, Laura. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm, I'm good, too. Um, so... It's very early in the morning in Brisbane, and I think it's like, uh, you know, the sun's just coming up. How about you? Where are you at, and where? what time is it for you? Yeah, it's just past lunchtime, so the the sun is very high in the sky, and I'm, I'm well-fed, ready to go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I've just got my coffee that I'm working on here. Um, so I don't think I've met you, but I certainly have seen you talk at some conferences, and I know that you're friends with some of my students, right? Yeah, yeah. Some of my favorite humans are your students, actually. Um, yeah, Deb Levy and Anna Kazdan. So I feel like I know you very well just because I know them so well. Yeah, I mean, they've probably told you some things about me that may or may not be true. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's like a, a really neat connection. And, and where are you working at the moment? So I'm at UCSF right now um i'm coming up on my three-year anniversary of being a postdoc here with eddie chang um Uh but some exciting news come september 1st i'm actually starting my own lab at stanford um so yeah really really excited for that yeah yeah you mentioned that that was in the in the works over um and i'm really glad that it's all panned out and that you'll be uh, starting there I mean what a great place to land for your first faculty job yeah yeah and it's going to be uh really ideal I think for the type of multidisciplinary work I try to do because I'm going to be officially and jointly appointed between psychology neuroscience and data science um with a link to the linguistics department as well so I think it, it's going to be a pretty nice combo oh it'll be perfect and they have such a great linguistics department there, you know, like um, when, you know, because I, I, I got my first academic training in Australia, um, working on Australian Aboriginal languages. And um, a lot of the theory behind all that work came out of Stanford, people like Joan Bresnan, mm-hmm. with lexical functional mm-hmm. grammar, because like kind of mainstream generative grammar didn't really do very well with free word order languages of Australia. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Resnan and, and, you know, the work that she'd done there at Stanford um, was, you know, definitely like um, sort of the guiding theory behind like the you know, Australian linguistics when I was an undergrad. So I've always like really appreciated that, that department. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be a great mix of minds of people with different expertise. So, yeah, I think it's going to be great. And do you even have to, are you going to keep living, are you living in San Francisco right now in the city? Yeah, that's right. And I'm going to continue living in San Francisco. And um, just com- commute down? Yeah. See, I'll see how the commute is. Uh, luckily, I'm 
an early bird, so I don't mind kind of traveling before the majority of people are traveling down. So I'm hoping that that'll work in my favor and won't make it too bad. Mm-hmm. It's not that far. Yeah, I think on a good day, it's about 40 minutes door to door, which mm-hmm. is not terrible. Well, you'll just have to find some things to do in the car, like listen to my yeah, podcast. Yeah, I can listen to <laughs> podcasts. Yeah, exactly. Oh, or the train. Are you going to get the train or are you going to drive? Have you figured it out yet? I think I'll, yeah, I'll figure that out. I might do a do a switch up depending on how I'm feeling. Yeah. So um, can you tell me about how you came to be in this world? Um, you, you sound like you're from Britain. Um, yeah. Where, where, where were you born and where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in a pretty small town called Shrewsbury, um, which is right on the border between England and Wales in the Midlands. Um, probably take about three hours to drive up from London. So it's, mm-hmm. um, it's a pretty small town, like 60,000 people in the countryside. Um, most people haven't heard of it, but it does have one claim to fame, which is that Charles Darwin was born there. Oh, okay. Um, they don't mention the part that he left pretty promptly um, when when he could. Um, but yeah, that's my one claim to fame from where I grew up. Um, and I then studied my undergrad at Cardiff um, in linguistics. Uh huh. What did you? Um, um, well, before that, like, were you? So you you kind of started came into the field from the language side of things. So were you interested in languages as a kid? Like how did you get to ending up in a linguistics program? Yeah, I guess I guess I can say this now that I have a faculty position. Uh, honestly, I wasn't really interested in language or anything school related at all. Um, I was much more interested in underage drinking with my friends in fields. Um, <laughs> But one thing that I did know about myself is that I really liked to write. Um, and actually, I nearly didn't go to undergraduate uh, like university at all. It was a very last minute decision um, that I and I actually didn't I didn't have good grades or anything. I was like, OK, well, if I'm going to do this, I should probably have reasonable grades to go to like have a bit more choice. So I just kind of scrambled in my last year of mm-hmm. uh high school to redo all of my tests to get like a, like reasonable grades and then uh, decided to go and I chose linguistics because I was like okay I don't know what it is I want to do really but I know that I like writing and so it mm-hmm. sounds like linguistics is probably a uh, topic that would allow me to do something write- writing related in the future so that's that's why I picked it um so huh. yeah, I definitely don't feel like language studies were really kind of written in the stars uh, from from my childhood or anything. It was definitely just making making a choice based on the few things that I knew about myself at that time. Mm-hmm. That's really funny, and I like the the specific detail that you give that the, the underage drinking happened in fields. Um, it, de- <laughs> yeah. it definitely reminds me of when I went to England um, with my parents and my and my brother when I was eighteen um, for a, a family holiday. Um, they let my parents like generously let me go out on the town by myself in Oxford, mm-hmm. and I, d- I don't know why they. I mean, that would be now that I have kids, I'm like, why that would be terrifying. 
Um, but maybe you, you get more like you loosen up as they get older, I guess. Anyway, so I wandered around Oxford and like somehow I met some hippies um, and they took me out to a field where we drank. Like, and there, there was a tent there. I don't, I don't really understand the setup or if they were living there or what, but like definitely like I was taken. That was like my one experience of like genuine like English drinking with English people was it, it happened in a field. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's everything. And there, there are certain fields kind of earmarked for the the drinking location so all of the youths know that this is where you need to meet at I don't know 11 a.m on a Saturday though because this was I mean, I'm making myself sound old but there was this was pre-phone era like not everyone had phones but everyone just knew uh-huh. you just need to go to this certain field at a certain time and you'd, <laughs> you'd see people there <laughs> oh that's wonderful so when you studied linguistics in college, did, did you get into it at that point? Like, did you start to, uh, you know, get into the subject matter or were you, uh, uh, how did that go for you? Yeah, this was kind of a, a transformative few years for me. Um, I never really, as I said, put much kind of passion into, into schoolwork and then everything just changed. And I found myself just fascinated by what it was that I was doing and fell in love with the process of learning for like the first time, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I also, I was really fortunate that I had an undergraduate advisor, uh, Lise Fontaine. We often think of her as the the angel in my life. Um, and she really believed in me and really um made me see for myself that I could do these things and that um, I had some kind of academic talent. Um, And yeah, I guess this kind of spurred me on to uh, pursue the the topics further. Um, Yeah, I think the thing that I really enjoyed about linguistics is it, it felt very systematic and I liked that I could sit down and create say a novel sentence and then use a set of tools in order to understand how it is that that sentence came to be and why it's structured in a certain way and not in a another certain way and I'd never thought about language in this systematic uh sense before it was always just something that came out of my mouth yeah um without really considering it so so syntax is what kind of appealed to you intellectually yeah, I also, I studied a, a particular, so I didn't study Chomskyan uh, linguistics. I studied functional grammar, which is a slightly different flavor. Actually, Halliday, yeah, I have, think he's Australian. Um, yeah, and functional grammar, it's, yeah, like you're talking to one of the few people, you know, that's had some exposure to that probably in our, in our field because Sydney University, where I did my undergrad, um, had a big functional grammar um yeah. kind of wing and and there was this kind of like unspoken tension between the you know kind of generative people who were like I said like kind of in the Stanford school of generative linguistics and they were focused on you know Australian Aboriginal languages mostly and then there was the functional people and mm-hmm. yeah so I, I I took courses in that and I really enjoyed it actually it's like a, just a different uh you know it's just a different kind of grammar right it's got it's more yeah. semantic it's definitely more semantic from the get-go and it's more tied to pragmatics and information structure 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, so yeah exactly. I, appreci- I, I appreciated like having that as part of my training. So that was big mm-hmm. where you were, huh? Yeah. And uh, we didn't have a generative wing. It was all functional grammar. Um, so I wasn't exposed to, to generative linguistics until much, much later. Um, huh. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah, I, one I, of think, my favorite... I think is not so common. Yeah. One of my favorite like assignments that I remember from uni was um, I, did, I did a functional grammar analysis of the Leonard Cohen song, um, Story of Isaac. I don't know if you, do you know that by any chance? No, it's sorry. like, it, it, it's okay. It's kind of obscure. It's like, it's just, it's like the telling of the, the Abraham and Isaac story, but from the point of view of Isaac, okay. where, you know, you, instead of doing the killing, you're like getting killed. <laughs> uh, and then I compared it to like the biblical version and uh, with a functional grammar analysis. And I put like so oh, much cool. work and I put so much work into <laughs> that. Like, you know, st- I studied like the structure of every single sentence in like the biblical telling of the story and then the song and just kind of showed how like Leonard Cohen had like, you know, just changed the narrative and like how he, you know, all the devices he'd used to like flip the perspective. It was cool. It's really cool. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So um, I know that you went to grad school at NYU. Did that kind of just follow? How did, how did that come to be? Yeah. So now so then after my undergrad, um, this undergrad advisor of mine, Lise, she asked me if I wanted to do a PhD with her in like theoretical linguistics. Um, and I thought that would be a good idea. Honestly, I didn't have kind of a, a better plan. I really enjoyed what it was that I was doing with her. So I thought that was a, a good idea. But I didn't, I was too late in the process to actually apply and the UK system requires you to have a master's before you can uh, apply to a PhD program directly. And I was also a bit too late in in that process. Um, So I was working in a falafel shop at the time and my plan was to continue working in this falafel shop for a year to save up enough money, which we can just pause there for a second. I'm not sure in what world I was living in that I was going to save all of this money working in my falafel shop um, to save up enough money to be able to afford to do a master's um, such that I could then eventually do the PhD with Lise. So this this was all my plan. Um, and I signed a, a lease in, in Cardiff and I was all geared up to stay there for another year. Um, and then... Uh, kind of out of the blue, Lee's messaged me and was like, oh, I saw that there's this master's program um, and it's just one year and they cover the tuition fees. So maybe you could do this and then you would be geared in just a year's time to do the PhD. I was like, this sounds great. Uh, and she's like, there's just a couple of things. Uh, one, it's in the Basque country um, in northern Spain. <laughs> um <laughs> And two, it's slightly different from what it is that you've been working on so far. Um, and as much as it's about the cognitive neuroscience of language. At this point, I was like, okay, please, I love you, but I think that you've lost your mind. I don't know anything about the brain other than like roughly where it's located in my body. Um, but I was like, okay. Well, Lee's words go. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll apply to this thing. There is no way 
that anything is going to come out of this. There's just there's just no way. But I put my application together um, and it was also partly in Spanish, which I was like, okay, what? The the, the <laughs> master's itself was going to be in English, but the application was partly I mean, in Spanish. I mean, at least it wasn't in Basque. Um, you should be grateful. Yeah, actually, I did have the option and I didn't I didn't even approach that side. Um, yeah, luckily, one of the people living in my house uh, knew some Spanish, so she helped me with this. Like, yeah, I put my application together. I'm like, my everyone, my it's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know, but I, this will make Lee's happy, so I'm going to do it. And I put my application in and honestly just forgot about it. I was like, okay, well, that's a week of my life. I'm never going to get back, but mm-hmm. it's fine. I just continued working in my falafel shop. Um, and then, sorry, I'm giving you the, the long version of, of this, but uh, we can <laughs> maybe fast no, forward the, it. I want the long um, version now. Yeah, it's good. So then... Yeah, fast forward three months later, I'm going on a long bike ride with a friend of mine. Um, and we're going down one of these beautiful Welsh hills and she gets a puncture in a tire. Uh, but luckily at the bottom of this hill, there was a pub. Um, so we stopped at this pub to to fix her puncture. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Okay, we, we, the, the tire's fixed. She goes inside to like wash the oil off her hand, whatever. And what do you do in these idle moments? But pull out your phone and, and check your emails. So I did that and I see that, okay, new email, header, it's like, congratulations. Like, wait, what? And I open it up and it's from the, uh, the BCBL, the Basque Center of um, Brain Cognition and Language. Um, I'm like, oh, I totally forgot that I applied to this. <laughs> um, and then my friend comes out and she must have, my face must have been a picture. She was like, Laura, are you okay? What's, what's going on? <laughs> like, I just got accepted into a master's program. She's like, you applied to a master's program? I'm like, yeah. She's like, that's great. Where is it? Is it in London? Is it here in Cardiff? I'm like, no, no, it's in the Basque country. Like, What's the Basque country? I'm like, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, and I, I wasn't going to go. I was like, I, I'm not going to just rock up to, like, a country where I don't speak either of the two languages and study a thing that I have no, like, I know nothing about. Um, but then I Googled imaged San Sebastian uh, mm-hmm. where the research center is and I mean to this day it's the most beautiful place I've ever seen in my life um, so yeah I decided to to pack my bags and endeavor into this adventure with the idea that okay if I fail miserably which at that point I was like this is much more likely than not that I'm just gonna this is gonna be a catastrophe but it, I'll be in the same position that I would be in if I didn't try. So I mm-hmm. decided to do it. Um, and I mean, the first, it was tough. It was like my first, I've never, never done statistics before. Didn't know anything about the brain before. Like it was all brand new. Um, I feel like I had a constant like brain pain for the first few months of just like growing all of these neurons. Cause clearly that's how it works. Um, but I just fell in love with it completely. The um, the, the subject matter. The subject, yeah. Um, and yeah, I told Lee, I won't. 
be coming back to do uh, a PhD with you in, in theoretical linguistics. I think I need to pursue the cognitive neuroscience of language instead. Um, and yeah, I just I just loved it. Um, and how and, did how did she feel about that? Was she as supportive as you would have hoped a mentor to be? Yeah, no, she's she is amazing and is amazing. Um, I mean, she was disappointed because I think she was excited about having me back to work with her. But um, I had also corresponded with her as I was going through, and it was she very knew it was clear. clicking for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think she was just really happy that I found something that I was really passionate about. Yeah, I think that's really all you want for your students, right? At the end of the day, you want them to just mm-hmm. find something where they're going to really thrive. Yeah. Even if it means letting go, which is hard to do sometimes. Um, okay, so did you do research there or was it all coursework? I did a couple of behavioral studies. Um it was a lot of coursework. It was mainly coursework, but we had a project that was going on alongside. Um, and yeah, I investigated morphological processing with like a auditory lexical decision task, mm-hmm. which was a really nice introduction to doing experiments. And I worked with Artie Samuel and Phil Monaghan there, um, both of whom are yeah, I uh-huh. feel like I also owe a lot to them. They were really, uh, I learned a lot from them about how to do science and how to think about problems and how to write papers. Um, so that was, yeah, that was a really great experience too. Um, and did you go to NYU after that? Right. Okay. Then, <laughs> um, <laughs> then I knew at that point that I wanted to do a PhD in like neurolinguistic topics um and I decided that I wanted to do it in the states um because I felt like you maybe had a bit more autonomy over the um studies that you conduct and you have a little bit more time to do them um but I I didn't feel quite ready to just go straight into a PhD program so I decided to apply to like lab manager research assistant positions instead uh-huh. um so yeah so i looked at a different open um positions and nyu had an opening uh at the abu dhabi campus mm-hmm. yeah you've got a um, bit of a history of going to odd yeah. places don't you <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i can't say that it was always really planned um but I mean, I yeah, definitely wouldn't change a thing. Um, so yeah, so uh, fast version. I applied to this position, um, and Alec Morantz and Lena Pilkinen were the uh, directors of the MEG Language Lab in in Abu Dhabi. Um, and yeah, so then I packed my bags and and went over to, to Abu Dhabi for for a couple of years and worked as a lab manager there um and uh also had the great opportunity to even do my own experiments as a research assistant um so i that's where i learned how to do meg and um kind of taught myself how to code and um yeah because i I know you had publications stating back to about then so i didn't realize that that was as an ra rather than a phd student yeah yeah that's really neat yeah exactly 
yeah that was yeah that was really great um and Alec and Lena were uh really supportive of that of like um me kind of coming up with my own experiments and testing different things um yeah and then from from there I applied to different uh PhD programs in the US and decided that NYU was was the best fit and then I continued working with Alec and then um convinced David Popple to join my team as well so um yeah so I did my (laughs) yeah I remember yeah there were yeah he was very enthusiastic um about having me on board so yes that was great I had like two lab families really uh one in linguistics with Alec and his group and then one in psychology um with David's group and I just literally just split my day in half like I would spend the morning in one building and the afternoon in the other and it worked worked really well isn't that the story of our field right I mean it's just like inherently you have to bridge these these worlds right like if you want to do language neuroscience research you just need to it's always on the border of two things yeah yeah I think so um yeah I think that's part of what makes it challenging but also exciting like I think in order to to really do language neuroscience properly you do need to uh, pull in expertise and um, ideas from from all of these different disciplines um so yeah I think it's not also I mean that kind of gets reflected in the uh like backgrounds of the different people who work in this field like someone yeah could be a background in linguistics or computer science or neuroscience or biology and everyone is equally as relevant and welcomed into the community I think and everyone has their piece to to contribute yeah it's so true and it's funny I often don't know which field people came from when I yeah when I first meet them like and you know on the podcast I I always like asking people where they came from and like I'm sometimes I'm just surprised to learn that they came from like CS or you know philosophy or whatever like Mm -hmm. people just come from Mm -hmm. all these different backgrounds um Okay, so shall we get to talking about the paper that we decided to talk about today? Um, which I think yeah. is this yeah, dissertation related? Is this from your dissertation time? This paper? Yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I worked on this towards the end of my PhD, and it's it's one of the papers that that made it into my dissertation. Okay, so it's called "Neural Dynamics of Phoneme Sequences Reveal Position Invariant Code for Content and Order." And it just came out in Nature Communications. Um, I looked at the received date and the accepted date. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is a two and a half year review uh, process, which we maybe will talk a bit about as we go through. Um, that's maybe one of the longest I've seen. Um, I'm sure you have some some more stories from that. Um, yeah, yeah, it was quite a journey. Um, which yeah a number of people have commented on on that duration of time it was also I mean 8th of May 2020 yeah no one was in a good frame of mind in in that month either so I think there were a lot of historical things going on during that time yeah right yeah this is the pandemic paper or at least the review you must have finished the main work before then 
Um, okay, so yeah, I mean, you, well, you have um, it's been out as a preprint for a few years, and and I know that it's a well cited preprint, and it's now out in a top journal. So congratulations. Thank um, you. It's a neat paper, um, and it's about something which people don't really study enough, um, which is sequencing. Um, so can you uh, tell me um, why why do you think sequence like why do you think the study of sequential processing is so important for studying speech comprehension? Yeah, I mean, I think that sequences obviously play a crucial role in many different parts of language processing. Here I'm looking at phoneme sequences, but um, it's also crucial for sequencing words together, sequencing phrases together. Um, but looking at sequences at the phoneme level, I think, is also nice because uh, the closer you are to the sensory input, the more... Uh, readily able you are to to get clean signals non-invasively um so yeah so from that standpoint it was a really nice um kind of subject level to to look at um i also feel like for phoneme sequences in particular i find it really fascinating because it's kind of at the moment that you're going from processing something sensory to then connecting to something symbolic um mm -hmm. so yeah you're going from something kind of in the outside world only to something uh that only exists in, in your own mind um and i think that that's one of the most exciting things about this paper is it's starting we're starting to understand how the sensory pieces are actually used to then connect to stored representations um in in our mind in this case say lexical representations yeah so that yeah crossing that that bridge between an acoustic input and an abstract linguistic representation right. exactly and so how did you decide to work on this question did you was what did you kind of develop that interest in sequencing or did somebody say hey why don't we work on sequencing yeah so the I mean, the, the lead into this was actually pretty straightforward. It was a, something I've been thinking about for a while based on a previous study that I'd done um, where I basically found that the brain encodes the properties of a speech sound for a super long period of time. So around about a second after that sound has completely disappeared from the actual sensory signal. Um which to me just led to a conundrum. Like, you're, how can you keep this information around for such a long period of time while you're still hearing other sounds come in at, uh, at the mm -hmm. same time as well? So um, it suggests that there's a very high degree of parallel processing going on. Um, but up until now, I, I hadn't come across a study that, really explained how it's possible that all of these different sounds get processed at the same time without them interfering with one another and actually um, also keeping track of the order with which all of those sounds actually entered into the ear, which are, are two very important things that you want your system to do correctly in order to be able to correctly figure out what people are saying. Right. Yeah, I'm just kind of thinking back to like what would have been, um, you know, before you did this work, 
what was the paper that showed us the most? Um, and it was like Mescarani et al. 2014 from the lab that you're now in, right? Um, about mm-hmm. how speech sounds are processed in the brain. I'm sure you were living in, I mean, I'm sure you knew the paper well. Um, but it kind of, yeah. and I talked to Eddie about it on episode three, um, two years ago. Um, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in that paper, you kind of see the brain respond to each phoneme as it comes in. And there's like a very distinctive signature, you know, that, that allows them to, you know, to reconstruct what phoneme is being listened to at that moment in time. But it's all very like moment mm-hmm. by moment in time, right? It's almost like if you hear the word cat, it's like there's yeah. a happening in the, in the neural signal and then there's an ah and then there's a tur. And there's never, the, and there's right. not in that paper, like, a, you know, a, any mechanism by which you would integrate those sequential phonemes into something larger. So you're saying that you've noticed that, the, yeah, those representations don't actually just disappear the moment the phoneme finishes yeah, they, they linger and, for maybe a second and and you're going to do something about it right exactly and with the uh mesgarani paper that there you're looking at electrocorticography electrodes so you're recording from say tens of thousands of neurons as opposed to in um my work where i primarily use spinetoencephalography there you're pulling over like hundreds of thousands of neurons together um and mm-hmm. so i think that that's why that discrepancy kind of um comes out and that was part of the question of this paper as well like is the reason that um if you're looking at just a reduced set of neurons is the reason this looks like a transient encoding because the actual information is moving across space um mm-hmm. and uh when you're looking at kind of the, the global whole brain view that you get with MEG, um, you w- would be able to actually detect the responses as they they are actually moving um, across a much larger neural population. Um, so I think that all of this is kind of consistent with uh, the, the different sensitivities that different recording techniques have as well. Okay, that's interesting. Um, so can you tell me about the the study that this paper is based around like um the participants and the stimulus that they listen to so um sorry you mean what was it that uh what task people were performing in in this experiment or in the previous experiment oh no uh this the the current the 2022 paper that just came out okay yeah so um here the the task quite nice because the participants just need to listen to stories for a couple of hours while their heads in the MEG Um, and this naturalistic listening approach is actually something that I um, really feel like is a a good way forward and something that I plan to continue doing in the future Um, so yeah so people listen to these stories and I annotated the stories for precisely what phoneme occurred at what time in the story um, and what phonetic features belong to each of those sounds. And then also importantly, where that sound actually occurs relative to word boundaries. So is it the first phoneme of the word or the second phoneme of the word or the third, um, such that then we can investigate the sequencing of the sounds within the word. Okay, that's that sequencing piece that's so novel here. So you, you end up having 31 um, what you call linguistic features 
and they're kind of and like you just said they're kind of in a few different categories right so 14 of them are acoustic phonetic um kind of capturing properties like place manner and voicing then you've got like um order related features that are encoding where the where the phoneme is in the context of the word and syllable and morphing mm-hmm. that's that you know that there's your like original you know you did your first studies over on morphology and so now you're like yeah it's built it's built yeah, into always- it like that Right, exactly. <laughs> and then you also model, um, you've also got coding for boundaries between words. And then you've got these information theoretic measures like surprisal and entropy and frequency. Can you can you talk about um, why those are in the model and how you computed those? Yeah, so um, some of the properties here are included essentially as covariates. Um, so representationally, I was primarily interested in those 14 phonetic features. Um, but language has a, a very uh, annoying habit, although I actually I think it's intentional, um, of correlating with itself in terms of uh, its, cor- its features are correlated. Um, so certain sounds tend to occur at certain positions in the word with um, a given likelihood um so to make sure that I was truly um, investigating phonetic processing and not uh, other aspects of language that I didn't want to focus in on here, um, that's why I included some of these other properties like uh, yeah, the, the, um, where the, the sound is in the word and um, some of the statistical properties. Um, that being said, some of some of the properties in here too, I actually, in later analyses, wanted to look at phonetic processing as a function of the, for example, surprisal, um, to see whether mm-hmm. the phonetics gets processed the same in a highly predictable environment or in a low predictable environment. Um, so to make the model kind of complete, I put everything in the model to begin with and then split things up um, by those different factors later on. Um, and in terms uh-huh. of how I... Uh, yeah, because it, it, it ends up being quite... I sorry, we had some say, Zoom sorry. lag there. Um, I didn't mean to talk over you. Um, <laughs> yeah, why don't, yeah, you can go. Yeah, why don't you finish? Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Just in terms of how I computed these, um, I used a... Uh, a very large language corpus basically to um a spoken language corpus to determine um how likely a sound is given all of the other possible sounds that could occur given um the sequence of sounds um in the word at that point okay so originally some of these were intended as covariates but like they end up being quite important to the analysis i mean the paper i mean they kind of end up being you know um, but what the order, the uh, positional stuff, was that always intended to be a central part of this study, or was that did that kind of just come later? Yeah, no, this was that was always intended to be um, a key part of the of the analysis. Um, and yeah, in in the later analyses, I break up the the phonetics based on the location that it occurs in the word and and things like that. Um, but one of the, um, you'll, yeah, I actually um, quantify location in kind of three different ways. Um, 
So where the phoneme is in the syllable, where the phoneme is in the word and where the syllable is in the word. Um, and uh, didn't make it into the final version of these analyses. But um, I think it's also an interesting question of um, what the um, kind of end goal of the sequencing is. Like, is the goal here to, to make words out of phonemes or to make syllables out of phonemes? Um, or may, maybe phoneme isn't actually the right kind of basis unit to be uh, looking at um, in the first place. So, um, yeah, part of the goal of including these different uh, huh. distance metrics was to try to adjudicate between them. Okay, and that didn't make it. And that's why I, I was wondering why you kept on saying sub-lexical with sub in parentheses throughout the paper. Yeah. Like, and I was like, <laughs> what's she talking about? And, and now, I, now I see, like, you were thinking that it might be phonemes to syllables and not to words, right? Yeah, right. And here, I didn't really have the ability to discriminate whether phonemes were being made into morphemes or lexical items. So the the parenthesis sub is to um, kind of indicate that maybe what actually is happening here is sequencing into to morphological constituents, which, as you mentioned, morphemes mm-hmm. uh, is something very close to my heart. So um I I feel this is something that I would like to investigate in the future precisely what is the the unit being connected to and like later downstream or maybe higher downstream. Yeah. Cool. So you code all these things in the data set like you have 21 people they listen to 2 hours of stories you go through phoneme by phoneme and code it by hand I guess. Um and then you then you try to predict them uh using neural data. Uh, from the from the um, MEG and also using the spectrogram of the stimulus kind of like as a control condition, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so the prediction model is really complicated. Um, it's called back-to-back regression, and it was developed by your co-author, Jean-Rémy King, um, and some of his colleagues in a, in a previous paper in your image that I definitely had to like read in order, well, try to read yeah. to, to understand your paper. Um, and... As far as I understand it, like what it's trying to do is respect the fact that like the neural data and the featural data are both multidimensional, right? So the neural data, you've got like 208 channels of MEG recordings, and then then you've got these 31 features and it's like multidimensional on both sides. So it's not just a typical regression model. So can you explain why you chose this back-to-back regression approach and maybe try and give us the gist of how it works? Because it's really quite hard to understand. Yeah, so the main motivation for the back-to-back is to try to overcome the challenge that I mentioned, that if we take all of these different features of language, those features are very likely to be correlated with one another. And so when you're trying to decode feature A, you want to be certain that you're decoding feature A and not that which is correlated with feature A. And the back-to-back regression essentially allows you to um, to separate out the, um, the correlation between these different features so you can be confident that you are actually just uh, decoding the, um, the feature of interest. Um, and I guess briefly um the way that this works and the re- reason it's called back-to-back regression um is because 
the first thing you do is fit your run-of-the-mill um, decoding regression model um, in order to get a prediction for, let's say, all of those 31 features that you're interested in. Um, but then the way that you then evaluate how good that decoding was, um, rather than just taking, let's say, the truth of feature A and correlating that with the predicted feature A, you're going to take the um, the truth uh, of all of your features and compare that to the predicted of just one feature. And so you're just going to look at the variance accounted for um, above and beyond the variance that all of those correlated features accounts for as well. Um, uh -huh. I, this is, uh, it ends up being a pretty harsh analysis, uh, essentially kind of uh, in proportion to how correlated your features are. Um, fortunately, the in, in this case, the features aren't too detrimentally correlated, so it ends up being possible. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, the the power of your analysis just ends up reducing with the strength of the correlation. If obviously, if your features are identical, a correlation of one, you won't be able to to separate them. Yeah. Okay, that that helps me understand a bit. Um, and there was another thing that I was a little unclear on. So when you're predicting, like either from the neural data or from the spectrogram. Um, mm -hmm. Are you using just a single slice of time or is it like a window of time over which the signal is evolving? Like, is it a moving window kind of approach? Mm, yeah, I just use one single time step at a time. Okay, um, so, so it's, it's not, so it's it's not a window. It's, it's like literally a 208 vector of yeah. MEG signal from one moment in time predicting the features either at that moment or at a different moment. Right. Okay, cool. Um, so... Um, in the you know when the paper starts out, you kind of have this. I guess it's like a proof of principle in the first figure, um, where you just show that you're able to predict most, if not all, of the features from the Meg data. Is that a fair characterization mm -hmm. of that first figure? Yeah, and also kind of showing that it is indeed the case that these features are decodable for a long period of time. They're not just instantaneous oh, and yeah. then disappear, but they're oh, around okay. for like half a second or so yeah exactly okay so um yeah what the figure the key part of the figure shows time on the x-axis and then the explainability of various features like nasal vowel voicing approximate fricative as well as those other features like entropy and surprisal and location features so all of them are kind of predictable for about half a second um related mm -hmm. to the onset of the phoneme and so that's Mm -hmm. what you told us before, like about how like the, these things are not just represented for a moment, they're represented over, over the, over time. And, yeah. and, you know, how long is a phoneme, right? So like, just so, I mean, this, I, I was calculating this from your method section, you've got two hours of data and you've got 50,000 phonemes. Um, and so that's basically seven phonemes per second. So that, therefore, if a phoneme is being instantiated in the signal for half a second, that means that you're going to have three phonemes at a time, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, each, uh, yeah, in th these stories, each phonemes are about 80 milliseconds or so. Um, yeah, so yeah. something of the order of three to a little more than three. Yeah, right, um, Okay, exactly. so yeah, that first, so what you're showing first is you can decode th this information from Meg 
Oh, MEG. Lena told me that it, that you guys don't call it Meg. Um, <laughs> you can do whatever you want, Stephen. It's your podcast. I guess. <laughs> yeah, but you know, <laughs> to get the terms right. Um, and then you also. Oh, okay. So um, the actual like you talk about this in the paper, like it, the actual predicting predictability or the prediction performance is not high, right? It's only slightly above chance. And don't take this as any kind of critique because I'm like, you know, an fMRI guy and we, and we deal with signals that are like, you know, a fraction of 1% and get really excited about it. So I know that like, <laughs> it's not about the size of the signal. It's about the, um, you know, but what you can do with it, <laughs> what you can do with it. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, you're actually only predicting like, you know, chance in your predictions for your binary features will be 50% and you're mostly like hovering around 51, 52 um, but with super low p values, um, because you've got two hours of data and 20 subjects. Um, so you, that's, that's not important, right? Can you explain like, you know, it's not, it's not really about like how predictive it is. It's just the fact that it is predictive. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I think it's expected that, um, especially with the, um, continuous story listening. I mean, we've already kind of indirectly demonstrated here that a lot of the signal is being washed over from previous sounds and subsequent sounds. And so it's not surprising that the, um, the amount of variance you can explain is tiny because there's so many things going on when you're doing something like listening to a story. Um, I think you would expect the, uh, effect sizes to increase much more if you were just blasting someone with one syllable and then taking it away. Um, but yeah, so the the point here is the robustness of the effects given how many repetitions we have of these um, different sounds and, and how many subjects we were uh, able to record from. All right. And then you have your control condition of predicting from the spectrograms. And it looks like from the spectrograms, um, you can probably predict better overall, although you don't really talk about that in the paper. It's all kind of relative. Um, but it looks like you can predict the acoustic phonetic features, but you can't really predict the other features like surprise all and order, right? Is that a fair characterization of the findings there? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and indeed, the the same sounds that we can decode better from the spectrogram, we also decode better from the neural responses. Um but that doesn't hold true for the more higher order properties like the statistics and like the, the order of those sounds. So it seems that those properties are not present in the spectrogram and the, the fact that we can decode them from the brain responses is it reflects that it's something that the brain is applying to the acoustic signal. It's not something present in the acoustic signal. Right. Yes, that's clear. Okay. So then you kind of, so that's the, that's just the sort of setup. Um, then you ask the question, like, how does the brain, um, you know, that you, you're representing these phonemes for like half a second each. And you ask like, well, how does the brain then do that without mixing up the phonetic features of the multiple sounds that it must be coding at once? And mm -hmm. the first hypothesis that you test is what you call position specific encoding. Um, right. Can you explain what that is and how you tested it and why you decided that's not the answer? Yeah, um, so one solution that you might think that the, the brain employs to be able to process multiple sounds at the same time without getting confused 
is well it's easy you have one set of neurons that like let's say key sounds when they occur at the beginning of a word and a totally different set of neurons that like key sounds when they're in the second position of the word etc cetera, etc cetera. and so you'll have a different set of neurons for each sound but also different depending on where the sound is in the word and that would if you were to code that up that would give you a reasonable solution to this kind of conundrum that we see that these different sounds are, are processed in parallel. So the way that I tested whether or not that seems to be the solution the brain implements um, is by taking my decoding algorithm um, and I train it on just the responses to the uh, first sounds of the word. So let's say I'm, I'm trying to distinguish a fricative from a non-fricative sound at first phoneme position. Mm-hmm. Um, if the um, if the way that the brain solves this is by having a totally different set of neural populations, if that same fricative was in second phoneme position, then my decoder should be completely useless at reading out that information at second phoneme position. Um, and essentially, that doesn't seem to be true. I can take a decoder, which I trained on phoneme one, and that generalizes very well to phoneme two, and I can do the same train on phoneme two, and it generalizes very well to phoneme three. Um, And you can do any kind of mix of position you want, and you're still able to read out the information, which suggests that there is a set of shared neural populations which encode phonetic information, regardless of where that sound actually occurs in the word. Uh Uh-huh. And... I'm guessing you weren't surprised to rule out that theory, right? Because we kind of knew that neural response was, uh, in at least in considerable part, related to the spectrotemporal receptive field of the neurons, and like mm-hmm. that, you know, the phoneme, you know, the different phonemes would have would differ a lot on those dimensions, and that that was going to be reflected in the neural signal. So you were going to be able to um, do it across position, right? Right. And uh, position is of itself, I don't know, like I could make up a word which is 321 phonemes long and you wouldn't expect to be able to arbitrarily have a a neural population which can encode any position. Um, Uh, Only if you're a native Hawaiian. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Um, What is kind of cool, though, is that even just from a spectral standpoint, Sounds which occur at word onset do tend to have very different spectral properties than those occurring, like, say, at the end of the word or like before or after a vowel and and these kinds of things. Um, So I get into this a little bit deeper later in the paper, but this is one of the first indications that what we're looking at here is something slightly abstracted away from the actual acoustic signal um, that it is common across the different acoustic realizations of the same phonetic feature. Right. So if that's not the answer, um, let's talk about this other coding and mechanism that the, that you then investigate. And um, here I'm going to read a quote from your paper because I think you said it more clearly than I could. The, the idea is that each speech sound travels along a processing trajectory whereby the neural population that encodes a speech sound evolves as a function of elapsed processing time. Um, so can you tell me, like, what would that look like and how would that solve the sequential representation problem if, that, if it works like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 
one one idea is okay you have a sound enters the ear it goes to cortex and uh it's processed in that same set of neural populations for 500 milliseconds um however this would lead to um the the problem that then you have the same neural population essentially trying to process multiple sounds at the same time so an alternative that i wanted to to test here was that it's not just one neural population that uh, processes a sound but that you'll have population a processes it and then passes it to population b which processes it passes it to population c and so um as a function of time the information gets passed between different neural populations um and one of the important things here is that it always gets passed uh along that same spatial trajectory it always um it always traces the same path as a function of time um and why would this solve the problem it solves the problem because by the time you're hearing the next sound of the word those neural populations have already kind of passed the hot potato um over to the next set of neural populations and so their work is kind of freed up ready to receive the next pack packets of information um and then they in turn pass it over to to the next set of workers and so uh this means that parallel processing can occur without without ever having to burden the same neural populations to process more than one sound at the same time so how do you um test this in your paper so as you um nicely set me up uh with i um as a function of time i'm fitting a different decoder at each millisecond um and then figuring out the accuracy of each of those decoders as a function of time so here simply what i'm doing is uh asking okay the the decoder that i trained at let's say 100 milliseconds after the sound began is that decoder still informative to reading out the information which um at a, a later point in time so is the way that that neural um pattern uh, exists at 100 milliseconds the same at 200 milliseconds um and that would suggest that the information is in that same set of neural populations for that amount of time or has the neural pattern actually uh changed such that i wouldn't be able to um decode the information from a decoder earlier in time to read out information later in time mhm and and this is a this um approach is called temporal generalization and it's laid out in a paper by again Jean-Remy King with Stan Dehane from 2014 it's a really interesting paper um and the way you implement that um in this is really nice so it it's basically expressed in figure 3 which is like really the core of your paper right is that yeah. is that a fair thing to say like if you were to you know kind of make a postage stamp about this paper it would just basically have figure 3 on it so mm-hmm. yeah i it's hard to describe figure 3 to to an to the audience because it's it's very complicated and i poured over it for a long time it looks like a rainbow of fingers at a <laughs> 45 degree angle um 
And I'm not really going to try and explain it because I think you just explained what it really shows. But the idea of the 45 degree angle is it's kind of showing that like, as you can only decode a certain moment in time past a phoneme by using the that same moment of time to predict it. So in other words, what's going on in the brain like 100 milliseconds after you hear a per is not the same as what's going on in the brain 300 milliseconds after a per. So you can't make that prediction well. If you want to predict what's going on in the brain 300 milliseconds after hearing a per, you have to look at other instances of 300 milliseconds after hearing a per. So in other mm-hmm. words, it's um, these phonemes are consistent in their neural response, but instead of just being a a um, like a drawn out like 500 milliseconds of the same thing, it's like an evolving response that's predictable, but it's evolving. So I'm not saying anything other than what you just said. I'm just trying to say it more than once because I think that's necessary. Yeah. Um, it's really complicated. Um, I definitely advocate people to take a look at that figure. Um, it's it's very nice. So, you know, by and large, like these, the fingers don't really overlap in the figure, which is how you're showing that you're processing the phonemes parallel and simultaneously. Mm-hmm. But there's this one exception in the figure that I found really intriguing and um, I think you know what I'm talking about. You call it in in the paper. You call it a left-sided appendage, which I think is <laughs> yeah. funny because you're also anthropomorphizing the it? figure. <laughs> yeah, you're also like, and I, but you don't really explain it in the paper. You just mention it. It's like this. Okay, so what it is, and I, I'm sorry if this is like uh, getting really deep in the weeds, but I'm very curious. It's, it seems to be that the first phoneme of the word has a different pattern to all the others. Um, like with the first phoneme only, um, you can predict early responses with data from later. It's almost like there's some kind yeah. of echo. Does that, yeah. what's up with that? Do you have any idea what's going on with that? Yeah, I, I have some hypotheses. This is another thing. I mean, I guess this always happens when, when you work on a project, it right, raises all of these really interesting things to, to look at in the future. And this is certainly one of them. Um, so yeah, here you can basically decode the properties of the, the first sound, um, when you're at the offset of the previous word. Um, and one of my hypotheses here is that this is a, a predictive effect and that maybe this only happens for the first volume of the word because when you're you're listening to continuous speech and you're trying to anticipate what it is that these people are saying or you just kind of naturally anticipate, let's say, um, once you know what the first sound of the word is, knowing that reduces your uncertainty about the identity of the word more than any other um, sound in that sequence. Um, And so I wonder if the way by which we kind of predict what word it is that someone is going to say is partly by just anchoring ourselves onto what that first sound is and then allowing the rest of the process to to unfold. so I think this this might be a, a predictive mechanism um, which facilitates lexical recognition. Um, but yeah, this is something that I really want to look at further. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I I'm not I think I agree with you. Well, I mean, that it's something special about like 
predictability at the word boundary, but I, I wonder if it might be my, my sort of first guess is it's almost the opposite of what you said. Like, like the prediction of the next phoneme is actually much greater within the word than across the word boundary. Like the crossing the word boundary is a, is a point of low predictability of the next phoneme um, mm. relative to being in a word. And I would interpret it as like showing not so much that you can predict. I mean, I think it looks like you can predict early from later, not later from earlier, but I don't know. It's very complicated. And I don't think, but I, th I think that that's, it's something like what you said, like, it, there's a difference in the predictability that's like the first phoneme is very special and it's like also like so it's some kind of win it's like some kind of like index into the lexicon that's got privileged status yeah. i think yeah i think so and i think that first phonemes are in general uh special in terms of how they narrow down the lexical items um so yeah it, it'd be really great if we could use such a simple analysis of this one <laughs> uh, in order to be able to uh, investigate lexical uh, prediction and processing like that. I think that'd be Yeah. yeah I mean, I think really the, the future, future follow-ups are pretty, like yeah. pretty um, clear what you'd want to do there. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. So now I want to ask you something about um, um, from the peer review process. So this is interesting. Um, so, you know, this journal publishes the whole peer, re peer review document. Um, and it's, oh, wow. I think it's, you read through that. I, uh, I, I didn't read it word for word. It's like 66 pages or something. Yeah. <laughs> and I found it really interesting. It just gave me a, I mean, so kind of want, I want to ask you something that a reviewer asked, um, but I also want to talk about the meta process. So I feel like this paper, it's funny because you're reading this document, right? And it's referring, it's like a back and forward conversation. There are five reviewers here, by the way, which yeah. I'm sure you know, Ooh. I'm just saying that for the listener, there are five reviewers. Um, and, you know, there's, it goes through three versions, I think at least. And yeah. it's very interesting, like thinking about, okay, is this valuable seeing this peer review history? And it definitely is as, as from my perspective as the reader, but it's also kind of brutal because you're reading about this paper that's morphed over the two and a half year period and it's changed quite a bit. And like, it's trivial things like, you know, figure numbers are different and page numbers are different. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, they're talking about a figure that doesn't exist anymore. Or that's got a different number now. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of detective work. Um, but it's also kind of at the end of the day rewarding because you do get to see like at a deeper level, like what the, what people thought about different aspects of the paper. What do you mm -hmm. think? Do you feel like the paper got better in peer review? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the, it definitely helped to, to clarify a lot and to, um, I think that some things were highlighted that would have been uh, something that a lot of readers might also have questioned or had uncertainties or confusion about. So I, I definitely think that um, it, it helped with that. Um, there were... There also was no, um, I didn't have any MEG simulations in the paper beforehand. And I think that also helped a lot to really um, also convince myself of what it was that I was seeing. Um, and I don't think that I had any of the uh, spatial analysis on the topographies no, you, in there you didn't. either before. Um, and I think that that also uh, really helped. So yeah, the reviewers if you're listening it was painful but i think that the the outcome was um was a positive one that, that was my impression i mean i didn't actually read the preprint separately but 
just from seeing the final product and seeing the review, um, I, I could see what had changed. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're a reviewer too here, but I, I, mean, I mean that in the pejorative sense, not in the actual numerical sense, was reviewer four. <laughs> so reviewer four was your reviewer right. too, right? This is the, yeah. the trickiest reviewer. Um, and they said, um, they, they, their, their biggest critique um, was that, oh, it's no big deal that you're seeing this processing trajectory because it's just going to reflect responses propagating through the auditory system. Yeah. You, in, you end up rebutting that later. Like reviewer four, like they're like, no, I'm done here. Like they don't come back and right. and, and the editor brings in reviewer five to deal with <laughs> the reviewer four response. Yeah. And then uh, it's just a long story. Re- uh, listeners, you should go read this peer review document. <laughs> uh, but anyway, you end up rebutting it, like not even immediately, but later on down the line, like to reviewer five. So tell, tell, can you tell us how you, how you, how do you address that critique? Yeah. So, um, this was, I mean, this is where the, the spatial analysis comes in. So one idea, which I don't know, maybe you can consider it trivial, trivial. I don't think it would have been trivial, even if it had been true. Um, but I think it's interesting that it's not, uh, which is, okay, sure. Um, you just see that the information is moving because you're going from, uh, like say primary auditory cortex frontal to frontal cortex as a function of time. Um, and so what I did to see whether or not that was the case was um, by looking at the the weights of the decoder, basically just to see um, at these different time points. So as you go through the trajectory, where is the informative information on those MEG uh, sensors? And what I find is that um, for the phonetic features, actually it ends up kind of looking like a spaghetti mess. That <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the information, which it, it, I don't know is an interesting finding, that the information seems to stay local within auditory cortex. Um, I don't have the ability to make super strong spatial claims, but if I was to guess where this would be, I would just say, um it's hanging out in superior temporal gyrus mm-hmm. um but it seems to be the case that the information isn't just kind of moving um say uh anteriorly as a function of time but that actually the information is just kind of being reconfigured in the same brain area as a function of time um and that actually is a, a really important finding for understanding how the the system is actually using this information and um, why it gets um, configured this way. So, um, yeah, so I think that's a, a really nice outcome um, of this work to say that the information still remains local in one brain area. It just uh, the specific neurons within that brain area um, of what are kind of passing this information around. Right. So, yeah, that's just kind of telling us something about the nature of this temporarily extended trajectory mm-hmm. um, in terms of its anatomy. Cool. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like the reviewer was harsh, but like they ended up, uh, you know, getting you to put some stuff in the paper that wasn't there before and that and that made the paper better. So that's that's what yeah. it's, that's what's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so... You know, I know we talked before that that you you know we have a, a time cutoff coming up soon. I, th- I was like, oh, don't worry, it'll it won't take long to talk about this. And of course, we're coming up close to our time. But um, I want to ask you just a couple more things. So, 
Um, the last major empirical aspect of the paper is concerns like the way that uh, the timing of these representations depends on high level linguistic factors like surprisal and lexical entropy. Can you tell us about those findings? Yeah, yeah, this I think is really a very, very cool aspect of this work. If, I, uh, if I'm allowed to say that. Um, you, of course you are. I know, hey, you just got a job at Stanford. You can say anything. <laughs> right. But when I saw that, I know every so often your data is just, I don't know, it just surprises you. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to, so the way this happened was I was looking at the the rainbow fingers, um, as you described them, and I, I noticed that um, a couple of things. Uh, one, that the information about the first phoneme of the word seems to be maintained for a much longer period of time than, for example, the last phoneme of the word. Um, and similarly, I also noticed that uh, when I tried to decode the properties of that first sound, I can't do it until later in time, as opposed to if it's the last sound of the word, I can decode it much earlier. Um, and I wasn't sure if this was really a word onset offset response or rather something to do with how much you can, how well you can predict uh, what sound it is you're about to hear and ultimately what word this person is actually saying. Um, so mm -hmm. I basically repeated the the finger analysis, um, but I broke it up um, as a function of those two things I just said. So low and high surprisal would be um, the cases where you can really well predict the next sound versus you can't well predict the next sound. And um, I quite clearly see that when you can predict what the next sound is going to be, uh, I can decode it from the neural responses around about a hundred milliseconds earlier That's a than, lot. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, than uh, in the cases where you can't well predict it. And so my interpretation of this is, um, I should say, it's not that I can decode it before it happens. And I think that is an important distinction. Um, but once the sound has happened, you can reconstruct it faster from the neural responses if that thing was uh, already anticipated, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think this maybe suggests that um, as the brain is processing all of these very rapidly incoming sounds, it kind of uh, sets itself up in a certain state of um, process and maybe kind of pre pre-activates um, the the synaptic weights of certain sounds that it's expecting to hear. And so if it then, if the sensory input then indeed matches those weights, then the process can essentially just unfold much faster um, as opposed to if they don't mismatch. Um, and it's not the case that the whole process breakdowns entirely, but it just, it takes a longer period of time to get to that um, same level of, of processing. Um, and then on the flip side, I, again, split those fingers up, but this time as a function of how um, how certain the listener can be about what this word that's being said, what the identity of that word actually is. Um, so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, you can be very certain um, that, uh, yeah, that I'm saying a word, that I'm saying word X or very uncertain I'm saying word X. Um, and 
this I also think is really, really cool. So in the cases where um, it is not very clear what word this uh, word is going to end up being, the actual phonetic information itself hangs around for a longer period of time. Um, right. And contra, if actually, okay, I the word hasn't finished, but it doesn't really matter because I already know what word you're saying. Then the phonetic information actually gets discarded faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that this, I mean, both of these things, I think, but especially the kind of lexical entropy stuff, really highlights how flexible this processing system is. It's not just like a blind process that always unfolds with the same kind of temporal uh, latency and duration, but that the system can kind of choose to keep information around for a longer period of time in precisely the circumstances where it might need that information in order to disambiguate the lexical identity, um, which, yeah, maybe you can consider as kind of part of the point of the phonetic process is to uh, be able to link to the higher order structures. Right. So do you think at the end of the day, like, is that the most important contribution of the paper even? Because I I think the paper makes, you know, has several, it makes several distinct contributions into, you know, one thing is kind of just showing again that like um, phonemes are processed for much longer than their actual temporal duration Secondly, it's showing how that takes place, i.e. it's not just kind of an extended representation that's static over time, but it's an evolving representation that allows you to decode um, order as well as identity. And then third, there's this modulation by predictability and by processing needs. I mean, those are mm-hmm. three distinct um, contributions here. Which one is the most exciting to you at this point? Um, I mean, I think, honestly, all of them are really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, and I think that they they all kind of are part of the kind of emerging understanding of how all this works. Like there's just, there's a constant interaction between these different levels um, of representation and like the information available to the system at any given time. Um, so uh, I'm really excited about the, the stuff I just talked about, the lexical entropy, because that I think is getting us closest to what we talked about in the beginning of the linking the sensory signal to making contact with that like special moment where you go to something kind of stored and symbolic and kind of step away from the sensory stuff. Um, but I think that we need to look at it from kind of the, the whole perspective of how it is that you even get to that point. Um, and I think that that's through the processing of these uh, sequences. Yeah. yeah. And another, another, I guess, final thing um, is that I've started to to look at these fingers, um, not just for uh, phonetic properties of speech sounds, but also, say, uh, lexical properties of words. Um, mm-hmm. And they seem to follow this similar kind of uh, trajectory type process, um, which I think is also really exciting because it suggests that maybe this is kind of a a processing motif that just gets kind of like recycled at these different levels. Um, So I think that's another reason why I think the whole package is really important um, for, yeah, understanding the system at kind of like a, a broader level. Yeah. 
it's, it's a lovely paper, and I, I hope everybody um, takes the time to take it, you know, take a look at the figures and understand it more deeply than than we could um, get to in conversation. Um, so I was going to, of course, ask you about like what you've been doing in Eddie's lab and what you're going to do in your new lab at Stanford, but we ran out of time. So I'll just have to invite you back some other time when you've done more yeah. stuff and we can talk about it. Um, I think that there's so much more and I'm looking forward to seeing what you're going to do next with your work. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I'm ready to be invited back anytime. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, great. Well, thanks so much uh, for taking the time. And um, I'll let you go and we will hopefully catch up at, will you be at SNL? Yep. Yeah. See you right. in Marseille. I'll, I'll <laughs> see you in Marseille. All right. Take care. Thanks. You too. Bye. Okay. Bye. Okay. Well, that's it for episode 26. Thanks very much, Laura, for coming on the podcast. I've linked to the paper we discussed in the show notes and on the podcast website at langneurosci.org slash podcast. I'd like to thank Marcia Pettit for transcribing this episode and the journal Neurobiology of Language for generously supporting some of the costs of transcription. A brief plug for the journal, of which I do serve on the editorial board. I hope that you'll all consider submitting your work to the journal. There's a lot of reasons to do so. It's open access. It has very reasonable article processing charges, only $850 if you are first and last authors are members of the society. That's like probably a third or a quarter of the cost of what most journals are charging. It has really expert and fair editors and reviewers in my experience. I've submitted four papers there, two are published and two are in the review process, and I've been really happy with how it's gone. And it's a new journal, um, so it doesn't have an impact factor yet, but it will have an impact factor in the near future. So I hope you'll consider sending your work there. All right, well, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. Bye for now. Bye.